Well, the Lord be with you this morning. All right. Well, it is Palm Sunday, as is obvious by now, and it is the time that we are commemorating, not only commemorating, but entering into the story of Jesus. And that's why we do this as a liturgical church. For churches who are liturgical, we not only remember the life of Jesus throughout the year, but it's an act and an opportunity for us to enter into his life. The time to say as a family, as individuals, as a church, we're going to set aside this time to focus on not only the passion of Jesus, but to really enter into his story, because ultimately, that's what Jesus is inviting us to do. And what's fascinating is that here we are commemorating this time where Jesus in victory entered Jerusalem on a donkey, but it wasn't the first time a king did that. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to 1 Kings. We're going to be spend our first time, our first part of the message here. Jesus rode in victory as those who shouted out Hosanna to him on the donkey, coming in peace, coming in victory, coming in authority. And yet he wasn't the only one. There was one other king who did this very act a thousand years before him. So the context here, the author of Kings opens up. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. Uh, David, the most beloved king in all of Israel, even till today, right now is on his deathbed. And that's a problem because the nation is waiting. Who's going to be the following king? Who is it that David is going to hand over the kingdom to at this time? And if you can imagine, David has had 19 sons, not all from the same woman as well. So imagine the turmoil that the kingdom will happen if he dies and there's no ruler after him. And so what happens is one of his sons, who was not the promised son, decides to take advantage in this moment. Verse 5, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. This language, exalt himself, in the Hebrew is very negative, right? No one came to Adonijah saying, you are worthy to be king. No one, no one came to him saying, you have the rights to be king. He wasn't the next born son or anything like that. He is taking advantage of his father's weakness, sickness, almost death, to say, I'm going to take advantage of this and put myself where I want to be. I will make myself king. And then the author tells us, what is the problem with Adonijah? is that he has never at any time been displeased by his father by saying, why have you done thus and so? In other words, David has never disciplined Adonijah. Never in his life. He always got what he wanted. And then the following verse says he was also a ladies' man. He was very handsome. And he was born next after Absalom. And if you know that name, that is the other son that actually tried killing his father David at another time. And so the author gives this pedigree for who is Adonijah. And so his first act says that he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So he's setting out his, his party who's going to go through the city and say, Adonijah is king. Finally, we have a king. We don't have to worry about the turmoil. The kingdom's going to be safe. We have a king. It's Adonijah. And these men would go out proclaiming in the streets as Harold, our king, has finally come. And he says that he continued in verse 9. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle at the serpent's sown. This is his ritual for an anointing. This is his coronation moment. He sets up his own coronation. He chooses out a prophet, a priest, and sets out his own coronation moment here and now. And it says that he invited all of his brothers, 
all of the remaining brothers who are alive at this moment so that all the people would see. There's no contesting brother here. Right? There's no one here to say, no, that throne is mine. It says that he invited all the royal officials, all of the politicians right now in this place are there present. Anybody who could contest this is not there except the following verse, 10. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, David's closest prophetical friend and figure, Benaiah, who was one of his mighty men and helped lead his closest warriors, or Solomon, Adonijah's brother, the brother who was actually in private told that you will be the next king. Obviously, by this act, Adonijah knows what he's doing, right? He's going to withhold the invitation and in semi-secrecy, until it's too late, not invite them. And so what happens, starting in verse 11, is that the prophet hears about this, and he goes to Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, and he says, look, if this continues what's happening, you're done for. Adonijah, another wife's son, has exalted himself to become king, and if that happens, you better be sure that he's going to kill your son and you so that there's no one to contest his kingship. This is what I want you to do. David's on his deathbed. I want you to walk into his room, and you're going to fall before him and say, what is going on? I have been a faithful wife. I thought you said our son was going to be king. I've been with you this whole time. We've lost our son. You remember all this stuff we've been through? And Adonijah, this other son, is on the throne. Do you really want me to die? Did you not know about this? Or in other words, are you not actually functioning as king? Is the kingdom operating without your rule? And then what I'm going to do, Nathan the prophet says, is I'm going to come in right after you, and I'm going to say the very same things. David, Adonijah, your other son, has risen up. Has, has this been approved by you? Why, why wouldn't you tell us what is going on? And so they do exactly that. In verse 32, David's response says, he called to him, he said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. I don't know how to pronounce it. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule, my own donkey, and bring him down to Gahan. It's funny, when we hear about this idea of a donkey, and, and maybe if you've been in church, you've kind of heard this idea that Jesus, those who are riding on a donkey, it means they come in peace, right? This is not a war animal. And there's truth to this. You come in peace. But why would a king have his own donkey? Why would a king enter into his city on a donkey in peace? It's because by him doing that, by not having an army, by not having a sword strapped to him, he is saying, I know you know actually who's king here. You will not rise up against me because I know you know who wields the power. And so in this act, the father hands over his own animal of peace saying, when you ride on this, no one will contest you. And so the father gives him his donkey and he says he goes down and send them down to Gahan. This language is used because if you know about Jerusalem, it, it, it was called a city on a hill. Jerusalem was this city up on this tall hill and on the side, especially on the east side, would go down into this ravine that would be later called the Kidron Valley. A lot of historical things happen there, but what you need to know is it goes down into this valley, 
and up to what we call the Mount of Olives. So if you're familiar with that, that's a lot of Jesus' Passion Week is about to happen there. And he says, go down to this valley, and at Gihon, you're going to anoint my son with the prophet. Then you're going to blow the trumpet, and everyone is going to say, long live King Solomon. And then you shall come up, imagine this, come up from the east side of the city, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler of all Israel and of Judah. And they did this. So it says in verse 38, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of that guy, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride, listen to this emphasis again, on King David's mule, on his donkey, and brought him to Gehon. There Zadok, the priest, took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed him. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people cried out, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him as he rides up into the city. They follow him, playing pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so loud that the author would basically exaggerate that the earth was split by their noise. Whatever else was happening, you cannot hear it. The earth is basically shaking at the sounds of these trumpets and cries for Solomon to be king. Verse 41, Adonijah and all his guests who were with him hear this in their feasts. All those animals that they sacrificed, they're eating, they're feasting, they're drinking, and then they start to hear this party outside. And a young man named Jonathan, the son of this priest who Adonijah had gathered up for his own use, comes in. He says, you're an honest man. What's going on? Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and one of his leader of his mighty men, his warriors. And the Cherethites are there, and the Pelethites are there, and they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed him king at Gehan. And they have gone up from there, rode up from the bottom of this valley, up into the city. And the city's in an uproar. That's the sound you hear. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Even more than that, the king's servants came to congratulate the king David, saying, may your God make his name even more famous than yours. And the king said, blessed be Yahweh, blessed be God. The God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day with my own eyes seeing it. I ordered it. I witnessed it. He is the king. In verse 49, the reaction of Adonijah, all the guests trembled, get up, and they all went his way. They were basically saying, you never saw me here. <laughs> I'm out. You never saw me. And Adonijah feared Solomon. He's fearing for his life. He knows exactly what he did. He tried to usurp the rightful king in this moment. And so he flees. He runs to the temple, to the, to the, the place where they believe that the presence of God physically manifested and grabs onto the horns of the altar. In some sense, he's saying, mercy and refuge for me. If, if, if you want Solomon to deal with me, you got to promise me that you're going to spare my life. Because if not, I'm not leaving this place, and you're going to have to shed my blood in the presence of God. This is a cry for refuge and mercy. 
and Solomon was made king. That was the first king riding into Jerusalem from the east and sitting on the throne. By the time we get to Jesus, fast forward, God's people are longing for this king to come. An anointed one, the word Christ, Messiah, means the anointed one, the anointed king, as Solomon was anointed by the oil, to come and fulfill the promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring from your body and I will establish his kingdom. My house shall be, uh, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here's the thing, Solomon never fulfilled that. Because right after him, the nation falls apart. Why? Because it was promised to him. Solomon, by his father, the Lord searches all hearts and understandings, all the intents of the thoughts of man. That is terrifying and comforting all at the same time. And he says, if you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And that's what happened. Solomon was never the king that God's people could have hoped for. He never had the capability of establishing the throne of David eternally forever. And so from the beginning of Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, for the next thousand years, Scripture is filled with passages promising there is still coming one who's going to sit on the throne of David and he'll do it forever. They're waiting. Who is this son of Eve that will crush the serpent with his heel? And the serpent's going to strike him. Who is this one that Daniel saw in in, in chapter 7 that has the appearance of a son of man, yet stands before the Ancient of Days, a name for God himself, and brings an eternal kingdom? There's one passage in the entire Old Testament that talks about one like a son of man and the kingdom in the same passage, and that's Daniel 7. And what was Jesus' favorite title for himself? Son of man. It wasn't the son of God. It was the son of man. And what did he preach all the time? The kingdom is coming now. In my presence, the kingdom is coming. Zechariah, the passage uh, that we have heard in Matthew, as he looks forward to the promising fulfillment of God, bringing the son of David to fulfill that spot, to take the throne, he sees the fulfillment of what Solomon never could be. The unfaithful man finally being, having the fulfillment of him sitting on the throne. And he says, say to the daughter of Zion, Zion's Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming humble and mounted on a donkey. When will come this fulfillment for the king that Solomon could never be? This is 400 years before Jesus. And here we are, Matthew 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, a city to the east, near the Mount of Olives, where Jesus will be crucified, just east of that Gahan spot, Jesus says to his disciples, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you're going to find a donkey. Untie it. Bring the donkey and the colt to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say that the Lord needs them. This word Lord is curious. It's often used for a master, for a Lord, but it is also the word that we get most often attributing to God in the New Testament. Jesus now, in using these words, is starting this whole entire time. I have hidden who I am. For three and a half years of ministry, I've told people as I healed them, shh, don't tell anybody. My time's not yet. 
As I, as I cast out demons, shh, don't talk about it. My time's not yet. And now is coming the moment for revelation for all to see. The people, the world will know who I am. Matthew understands this and says this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. And so the disciples did exactly that as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. And most of the crowds, get this, the crowds leave Jerusalem. They're entering here for Passover. People are not just hanging outside the city. They come out from the city to meet their king. This is an image of what happened in many cities where when a king would come in triumph, all this entering party would leave the city, celebrate with the king as they entered back in. And the people go out to meet Jesus, and they're throwing their coats down on the ground, and they said others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. These are the branches that we're celebrating. That's why this is Palm Sunday. And these branches, this uh, 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 fig palm branch, was a massive branch that people would wave, and this was signifying the king has had victory. This is his victory entrance at the moment. And then it says, the crowds that went before him and the crowds that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. There you go. Some of you got it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One more chance. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus starts on a donkey from the east side and rides up into the city of Jerusalem with the crowds following behind him saying, finally, here is the son of David. They don't miss this. They know exactly what's happening. That son that Solomon was supposed to be, <laughs> that never came to fulfill, that son that is supposed to sit on the throne and establishes God's rule and reign on earth through his chosen king has finally come. And in that act, they are calling for salvation, save us. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, with a partial truth, one truth of who is being is, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. <laughs> the people are yelling, finally he has come the one that we have been waiting for, that son of David that we have been waiting for to establish God's rule on earth, to fix all that has gone wrong. And I think as we hear those words, I believe that there's something, do we not desire and cry out the same thing in our own hearts? Right? Like there's something in me when I hear these words that cries out, yes, Jesus come. That's what I long for. As you see the shootings, the abuses, the neglects, the, the, the corruption of sin in humanity as it breaks down at every level from politics to families to cities to school systems to homes to individuals. There's something in us that cries out, salvation. Hosanna, Jesus, son of David, come. Thank you, kids. There's something in society that we notice and we see as the opposing rule of God, and we see it when we see shootings in schools, and we see it when we look at our own kids and we look in the mirror. And there's this cry for Hosanna. There's this cry for save us. 
still doing it. <laughs> the irony of all this, that when they are quoting Psalm 118 that we heard read, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in that same passage shows what's about to happen. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the principal laying foundation upon which is God is going to build his house. He's going to build his people, his kingdom. And the Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. What's amazing about this is Jesus, Jesus sees this. Right? Jesus, as he's entering into Jerusalem, receives their praise and at the same time recognizes the fickleness of man. He recognizes, he sees in us the fickleness inside of us. In Matthew 23, two chapters later, he says to the city, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. They have just said, who is this man? It's the prophet. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a, a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. This is a, a proclamation of where they've been as well as judgment that's about to happen to them. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say this time, and all submission and all recognition for who I am, blessed is he, Jesus, who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's Jesus, the king of creation, the king of life, the victor over death, and the crowds are about to have the audacity in just days to go from blessed are you, son of David, to crucify him, like kill him. We'll take that criminal over him. As if they had the authority to mandate that in the first place. Right? Jesus says, I lay down my life and I pick it back up. No one has the authority to take it from me. Jesus, as he walks into Jerusalem, is in all authority on a donkey, whether he was on a donkey or came on a horse. When days later, he's with his disciples washing feet as if a slave, he is in all authority. The next day, crucified on a cross on his earthly throne as a mock trial, he's in all authority, still in control. In the grave, to the point of when he raises and sits on the throne to the right hand of the Father. At no point does Jesus ever say, I'm not in control. In this very moment, they cry out, blessed is he, and he sees their fickleness. Here's the thing for us today. This is the story of Jesus. We're here to celebrate the beginning of the Passion Week of Jesus, the most important, not only week of the church, but of human history. We have in the West divided time by this week by this person. This is the beginning of his darkest hour, his passion that comes right before his victory. And here's what I would love for us to walk away with. And this might sound harsh, but embrace it just in humility and love. This is the story of Jesus. Jesus is not meant to be a piece or a cog of your story. He invites you 
to be a part of his. There's this thing that goes on today, unfortunately, in, in, in a lot of popular teaching in churches, that Jesus is here. He exists. He existed. He does all these things just because he wants to, to, to serve you in any way, right? Any, any way that you lack self-realization, any way that you lack in life, any way that you're not getting what you need, that he is here, that he went to the cross so that you could get what you want and need. Use him in a sense, like a genie in a lamb. Call out to him just when you need it. The crowds followed him proclaiming who he was. They had the honor to be part of his story in this moment. He does not come so that he can just be part of your politics, to be part of whatever is missing. He came to be Lord of it all, for us to have the opportunity to say, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed king, and for that reason, I bow my knee to you. And in that, a blessing is flowing from the throne of God. But I don't come so that I can manipulate the king. I come to bow myself before the king, knowing he is a good and perfect king that has a beautiful plan for me. There is this time that Jesus is going to return. As we remember the riding into Jerusalem in victory, this points us to the fact that Jesus doesn't stop at the cross and he just doesn't stop at the resurrection, that he is coming back. And that's his promise. And the image we get from the end of this story in Revelation is that this time, it's actually not on a donkey. It's on a horse. And Jesus is saying, this is actually the end. All of human history is all about Jesus. It is all about the God triune. This is his story that we are a part of. And the thing is, is that those who oppose, those who reject, they say, I don't need anything to do with it. Those who say crucify him or ignore him or whatever will desire to run to the horns of the altar crying, refuge. Yeah, at that moment, it's too late. <laughs> so what can be our response today? What I would like to do as we begin the Passion Week, this is not the end of the Passion Week. This is just the beginning. And in a week from today, we're going to be celebrating in all glory and praise the day that he rose and conquered. What I would like to suggest is that we take a prayer with us through this week, that we would pray as a church, we would pray as families, pray with your kids, pray as individuals, and it would be these words, come, Lord Jesus, take your rightful spot on the throne of our hearts. That is the only rightful response to Jesus. It is not to just say a simple prayer and go on with life. It is not just to ask until you get what you want and then move on. It is to make Jesus, the risen Lord, the author of life, king of all areas and dimensions of my life. Because if I don't, he will come and take his spot no matter what. This is not my story. This is his. Let's pray.
You have come on a donkey in all authority as the Prince of Peace. And for that, we recognize to you as your people and say, come, Lord Jesus. Take your rightful spot on the throne of our hearts. Do that here in this place. Do that this day. And by the power of your spirit, call us to repeat these words and make this a continual act of worship this week and may it flow into a living, a lifestyle of making you king past Easter of 2023. In your powerful and victorious name, we pray, King Jesus. Amen.